And now, Manufacturing Matters with your host, Cliff Waldman. Good day, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Manufacturing uh, Matters. I'm Cliff Waldman. I am the host for this program, one of many on Manufacturing Talk Radio. This is the show where we look at manufacturing through both a telescope and a microscope. Yes, we look at the big global economic, global political headlines. They matter a great deal to U.S. manufacturing performance. But at this time of epic change, we have to go deeper. We have to look at technological disruption, workforce upheaval, changes in the topology of global trade that matter a great deal to manufacturing, political changes. And we have to put it all together to help our listeners understand this new day in manufacturing. And that means discussing new markets, new technology, new economic thinking. We are here for you to understand the dramatic way that business in the goods-producing sector is changing in the U.S. and changing around the world. This is the first episode of our new fall season. I hope everybody had a great summer. And I have to tell you, folks, it wasn't hard to decide on a topic for this first uh, show of the fall. And once I decided on a topic, it was even easier to decide on a guest. As we all know, over the summer, we have been bombarded with headlines about escalating global economic risks. What's going on with the trade war? What's going on with that yield curve? What's going on with weak data in key parts of the world that matter a lot to U.S. manufacturing profitability? We have to think about that now because the risks have indeed become apparent and they matter to your business planning. It was very easy to decide on a guess. We have with us a rising star in global economic thinking. Greg Daco is chief economist at Oxford Economics, where he is responsible for producing the U.S. economic outlook using Oxford Economics' proprietary global economic model. He directs thematic research in the economy, on the Fed, on fiscal policy. He leads a team of high-caliber economists, and they produce intraday economic and financial market analysis. He conducts regular briefings on the global economy for corporate boards, for trade associations, for policymakers at all levels. Greg has the unique ability to, produce, to put forth a global picture in a concise and understandable way. That's hard to find, and therefore it's unsurprising that he is constantly in the media. He is often quoted in national and global publications, is a frequent guest of CNBC, Bloomberg, and National Public Radio. Before joining Oxford, Greg was the director of U.S. macroeconomics at IHS Global Insight, now IHS Market. He also worked in the Economic Affairs Department of the Belgian Embassy in Australia and the permanent representation of Belgium to the U.N. in Geneva. Greg is a member of the Board of Directors of the National Association for Business Economics. He's a former president of the New York chapter of NABE, as well as a co-founder and former president of the Boston chapter of NABE. 
As a longtime NAID member, I am delighted that Greg has really has assumed the leadership in the economics community. He holds an MA in economics from Boston University and a master in business administration from the University of Louvain in Belgium. Greg, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Cliff. Let's start with the U.S. picture, uh, where we have been dealing with this seemingly persistent schism. As of late, there have been significant differences in the performance of various sectors of the U.S. economy. Consumer spending has been relatively strong, while manufacturing and business investment haven't. They've certainly been weak. And the housing sector has been in something of a slump really since the beginning of 2018. My question to you, how long can this go on? Is this a sustainable picture? Can the U.S. consumer maintain strength in the face of what appear to be increasing headwinds elsewhere? Yes, I mean, I think uh, if you look at the broad picture of the U.S. economy today, uh, you're in an environment in which you're seeing ongoing global headwinds that are weighing severely on the manufacturing sector and on the business investment sector, equipment in particular. Um, and those sectors have seen significant declines in activity. The manufacturing output has actually contracted back-to-back uh, -back quarters uh, over the last two quarters, putting the, the sector itself in a technical recession. And business investment actually fell in the second quarter uh, for the first time since 2016. So we are seeing those headwinds weigh on domestic activity. Now, the encouraging element uh, to the U.S. picture is the fact that consumer spending remains uh, quite resilient and that we continue to see fairly strong momentum around 2.5% growth to 3% growth in terms of year-over-year -year pace of, of consumer spending. And actually, the second quarter uh, of this year showed consumer spending advancing by the most since 2014. So consumers and households overall are still doing relatively well. Now, they are supported by a fairly strong labor market. Uh, they are supported by steady uh, wage growth just above 3%. And they're also supported by an environment in which the personal savings rate is relatively high, close to 8%, and leverage is not excessive. Now, that does not necessarily mean that the U.S. consumer will continue uh, to press forward and uh, fight off any type of headwind, uh, but it means that as of right now, we see the economy only gradually cooling, uh, with consumer spending also cooling as domestic income uh, moderates, but not a sudden stop in outlays uh, from the consumer sector, and certainly not uh, a recession in the very near term. Let me ask you what appears to be the... Uh the bigger question of the day, what do you make of recent signals from the bond market, which um, I, I, don't, uh, I should instruct our listeners that while the stock market gets a, a lot of daily attention, the bond market is actually a much bigger market. So, Greg, I'm going to ask you, is, we've, had some, we've had a bit of a backup in rates in the past few days, but generally speaking, is your thinking, is the, in your thinking, is the general collapse in bond yields that we've seen over recent months – an inversion on some parts of the yield curve, are, is that all telling us that recent headwinds are likely a, a precursor to a recession? Is that, is that a recession signal? Well, potentially. I mean, we know that historically, uh, yield curve inversions, so the phenomenon whereby long-term rates fall below short-term rates, uh, has been uh, a valid and significant uh, predictor of recessions. 
um, but we also know that uh, there have been false signals. So if you look back at the last uh, seven recessions, uh, they have all been preceded by yield curve inversions. Uh, but the lag between that inversion and the actual recession has varied widely and greatly between anywhere between 10 months to three years. So um, over the past seven recessions, yield curve inversions have been relevant signals. Now, there have been a couple of instances where there were false signals with uh, the yield curve inversion uh, occurring, but no uh, recession following through. So that uh, is something to keep in mind, especially in an environment in which central banks are proceeding with um, an, an environment in which they're actually providing further monetary policy accommodation and easing policy, and also an environment in which um, you have a safe haven flow towards U.S. dollar-denominated assets, which puts downward pressure on long-term yields. So those two factors have to be kept into consideration when you're looking at the yield curve inversion. And while that yield curve inversion is indeed signaling a slowdown at the U.S. level as well as at the global level, we caution that it's not necessarily a signal of an imminent recession. Um, the fundamentals of the different economies around the world are weakening, but as of right now, we don't see the immediate signs of a recession just around the corner. Yeah, it, it, unsurprisingly, Greg kind of read my mind about the next picture. Um, you whenever the yield curve, you know, gets into some part of the yield curve, gets into some sort of inversion posture, or at least flattens out. You get the different this time, the the the, the argument that it's different this time, and the, the the key points that a lot of people are saying is that we have unusually low interest rates, and the fixed income markets have become. A, a, a lot more global in the sense of, uh, that capital tends to flow more freely, um, you know, between from from bond market to bar market uh, across borders. For now and in the future, our, our, if, if we stay in a world of low interest rates, and you know, the fixed income markets are becoming more global, are we going are we going to lose the yield curve as a, a useful signal for uh, for economists and economic forecasters? No, I don't. I don't think um, the yield curve should just be thrown out uh, to the garbage uh, just because of the, the current context. I think um, it's still a valid signal, but it's one that has to be taken um, into the context of, of today's global environment, where you do have uh, central banks easing, which uh, should put downward pressure on short-term rates and stimulate uh, the economy um, or the different economies around the world, as well as the fact that you have massive. Uh, flows into the U.S. pushing long-term uh, U.S. Treasury yields lower and therefore uh, flattening the yield curve. So I don't think that we should discount uh, the yield curve inversion as a signal of a potential slowdown in the economy, but I think we have to be careful in the interpretation that a yield curve necessarily means a recession is around the corner. All right. Now, look, sooner I, – I, I don't believe that um – We've repealed the business cycle to, to, you know, quote an old cliche. We've had recessions before, and we will have them again. It, it seems to be just a natural facet of a market economy. But here's what I do worry about, Greg: if the U.S. economy, if the U.S. economy, and when the U.S. economy does fall into a recession, at this particular time in history, are you worried that we are kind of low on monetary and fiscal ammunition? 
to fight the downturn? I mean, th- this has got to be some kind of a low point for the Fed's ammunition. They you know, they normally have much more to cut if indeed the U.S. lapses into a recession. And even fiscal policy, we are uh, although there seems to be precious little attention to it. Even with fiscal policy, we are dealing with escalating deficits. So between the two, are you worried that you know policymakers have have all too few bullets to um, to shoot a, a, at the recession and and get rid of it? Well, it's certainly the case that over the past few recessions, uh, the Fed um, has generally had about 500 basis points of monetary policy ammunition. And what I mean by that is that generally the federal funds rate, the key policy rate, has been around 5% before uh, prior recessions. What that has meant in the past is that the Fed has been able to cut by that much to bring interest rates uh, to the um, effective lower bound of, of zero um, and provide uh, quite a bit of, fifth, uh, of monetary policy stimulus into the economy. Now, if you look at the economy today, we have an economy that's gradually cooling in which momentum is expected to slow. And in that slower growth environment, you're certainly more exposed to uh, potential downside risks uh, and potential downturns. In the current environment, we have um, the main policy uh, rate for the Fed that is currently just above uh, 2% and uh, likely to um, potentially fall below 2% in the next uh, few months as the Fed adopts a more dovish approach. Now, in that context, that means that a Fed essentially has less than half of the traditional ammunition it's had in previous cycles to fight off a potential economic downturn or recession. So certainly on the side of the Fed, there is less ammunition in terms of policy easing from a, a rates perspective, an interest rates perspective. There's also that question of how much lower long-term rates can go. That's generally the intent of the Fed by pushing down the policy rate. It also indicates uh, lower long long-term rates, um, which stimulate lending or should stimulate lending and stimulate economic activity. Um, That will be less of the case uh, in the next downturn. In terms of unconventional policies, the Fed also has uh, still a fairly large balance sheet, and the resumption of any form of QE would potentially have some impact on long-term rates. but the question is how effective, how much uh, of an additional marginal uh, efficiency you would generate out of uh, additional QE purchases. Now, turning to the, the fiscal side of the picture, um, it's often referred to the fact that um, there is a, a limited amount of, of policy space on the fiscal side of the U.S., and I strongly oppose that view. I think that the U.S. in its current situation does not have any kind of imminent limits in terms of, of fiscal policy space. I think the uh, fact that we have a relatively large uh, deficit at this stage does not pause any form of imminent issue, and that if we were to be in a downturn, in an economic slowdown or a recession, um, Congress would act to try to limit the extent and the profoundness of this uh, recession by providing additional fiscal stimulus, temporarily increasing the budget deficit in an effort to try to get the economy going back again. So I don't necessarily believe there is an issue of policy uh, space, fiscal policy space. And with interest rates being very low today, it's actually less costly to borrow from a government's perspective. 
um, and I don't necessarily see that as a constraint. I would add as a final point in terms of fiscal policy space that beyond the interest rate element, there's also the element that the dollar is the world reserve currency. And so in that sense, the U.S. has this exorbitant privilege of holding the dollar as its, as its main currency and um, having the ability uh, to essentially uh, increase deficits and not risk uh, any uh, of the traditional uh, capital outflows um, if it runs a, a larger deficit that other countries might uh, via the exchange rate channel. Let me turn your attention outside of the U.S. now. Outside of the U.S., the global picture, whether or not it's pretending a recession, is certainly full of issues and concerns. Let me ask you, what region or regions worry you the most right now? Well, I would say there are two uh, regions that um, are currently experiencing uh, very difficult times um, and one that is uh, worth bearing attention. So the two regions that I think are facing the most difficult times are Latin America and Asia. If you look at Latin America today, uh, we have an environment of pretty much subdued growth across Latin America. And even economies that were doing relatively well uh, a few quarters ago are now in this very low growth environment where they're much more exposed to potential external risks. I'm thinking here of countries like Mexico or Chile, um, even Colombia um, are countries that are facing slower growth. And then we have the usual uh, suspects, which are facing not just low growth, but major political risks, including Brazil and Argentina, and of course, uh, the sad story about uh, Venezuela. So that is a region that I think is, is going to continue to experience uh, pretty low growth going forward. Asia is very interesting because uh, a large part of the slowdown um, has been uh, due to slower activity in China and a change in the economic regime in China in the sense that China is increasingly looking to favor services and the consumer side of the economy gradually walk away from an investment and export-driven growth model. Now that, in the process of doing that, it's essentially requiring less imports from the rest of the world, and in particular from the Asian supply chain, and therefore weighing on exports of the different countries in Asia. So we're seeing this weakness in China, um, exacerbated by the trade tensions vis-a-vis uh, -vis the U.S., weigh on the Asian uh, complex. And the, the region to, to pay close attention to is Europe. Uh, Europe has some uh, encouraging signals, has had some encouraging signals from economies like France or even Spain uh, doing better, but the likes of Germany um, and Italy are countries that are facing um, harder times uh, in part due to, to political uncertainty, uh, in part due to weakness in the, the industrial uh, production sectors of these different economies. And with the threat of Brexit continuing to loom over the future of Europe, I think it's in a region that we have to pay very close attention to. Let me, let me get you to focus just one more time on China. We, we are Obviously, China is daily in the headlines as a result of our increasing trade tensions. But slower growth is also you know, it, it is a subtext there, worrying. And we know it's slowing because of demographic reasons. We know it's slowing because of um, financially-related matters. And, we, of course, we know it's slowing because of the uncertainty and the, uh, the dislocation, the supply chain dislocations that uh, are coming and might come from uh, the tariff situation. All told, let me just ask you, what is your worst-case scenario, short-term, short short-term, 
what is your worst case scenario right now for Chinese economic growth? Well, I think there is uh, a potential risk uh, of an aggravation of the current trade tensions between the U.S. and China, uh, which uh, would have negative consequences for both countries, uh, but would uh, hit uh, China to a greater degree given its exposure to trade. So in a ramp-up in trade sanctions, uh, whether via tariffs or via uh, investment restrictions um, on, on U.S. Uh, companies or on Chinese companies, uh, would actually um, hurt China to a great degree. The question uh, would then be what happens in terms of uh, policy stimulus. So far, the authorities have been providing additional uh, fiscal and monetary accommodation to try to stave off some of these headwinds from slower growth around the world and these trade tensions. Uh, but should there be um, an ongoing desire to reduce credit growth and uh, to not provide as much fiscal stimulus, um, I think you would, fiscal and monetary stimulus, I think you would see a, a sharper slowdown in the Chinese economy and growth rates in the, the low five to high fours uh, wouldn't be surprising. I don't know that that would be the worst case scenario, uh, but that would be certainly a case in which China would slow quite sharply. Now, if you add to that or layer on the potential defaults uh, for, from, for some companies uh, uh, in, in China, you could start to get into a negative debt spiral. We know that the Chinese economy is highly leveraged, um, and there is a lot of uh, banking that uh, is shadow banking, so with that we don't necessarily know about, um, but I think that could further exacerbate any potential rollover and create some significant issues pertaining to liquidity uh, and financial sustainability. Let's let's for a second <coughs> let's for a second talk about this trade story in an even more global context than just China, although we understand China is, is, is the main story now. Do you worry that trade fights and trade rifts around the world are going to damage the global economy? In other words, are going to permanently slow global growth or at least put a cap on intermediate term global performance? Certainly the ongoing tariffs uh, that the U.S. administration has imposed on its trading partners, clearly uh, against China but, but against other countries too via steel and aluminum tariffs, clearly those protectionist measures are weighing on U.S. growth, on Chinese growth, but also on the rest of the world's growth. We estimate that the sanctions that have been put forth so far um, will curb global GDP by 0.3%, so 0.3% drag from the sanctions that have been put in place uh, through the end of, of August of 2019. Now, if you look at the new sanctions that have been um, promoted by the U.S. administration, including a new round of tariffs on consumer goods, um, as well as increases in existing tariffs, those new tariffs could further curb U.S. and global growth by another three uh, tenths, and that could be potentially aggravated if the financial spillovers and confidence effects are worse than they've been so far. So yes, there could be a potential drag on the global economy worth six tenths of a percent, 0.6 percent mm. um, on global GDP. That is massive at a point at which global GDP has already slowed by one percentage point. So we're looking at this trade war as a potential catalyst for much slower growth in the short run. But if you think about the longer run picture, these trade tensions and these tariffs between the different countries increase the likelihood 
that business investment is going to be weaker, that productivity developments and enhancements are going to be slower, and that therefore the global potential output, how much the economy can produce, uh, is actually falling, and that would hurt long-term growth beyond just the short-term effects and distortions from trade tensions. We will be paying careful attention to that, and for our listeners having many more discussions on that um, as the weeks and months go by. But for now, a final question for Greg. Greg, the elevated dollar is certainly one reason that the U.S. manufacturing sector is currently struggling, even arguably in something of a, a recession of its own. Is there an appropriate policy response to the competitive challenges brought about by the, the very high-flying greenback? Well, I think the dollar is certainly an issue in terms of U.S. competitiveness. Uh, we've seen the dollar remain quite strong in the face of rising global uncertainty, rising trade tensions, and slower growth around the world. As investors look for yields that are relatively safe, they have flocked into U.S. denominated uh, U.S. dollar-denominated assets, and that has pushed up the value of the U.S. dollar. Now, in terms of an appropriate policy response um, to, to the, 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 the constraints from a stronger dollar, I think the solution is not so much in interventionist policies that would look to devalue the dollar, because in essence, the U.S. has very limited capacity in influencing the value of the dollar directly. Um, it is actually uh, somewhat of a um, paradox that uh, the U.S. generally benefits uh, from a, a better situation in terms of growth and in terms of uh, its, its stance uh, on the competitiveness front, which is actually supporting the strength of the dollar and making uh, some dent into the overall competitiveness. So I don't necessarily advocate for uh, any type of direct policy response on the currency front, because I think that any form of beggar-thy-neighbor policy of a currency war would actually be detrimental, more detrimental, than a stronger dollar currently is. Uh, so I think the risks of trying to enter this type of currency war uh, would be more damaging than uh, currently uh, we're seeing because of a strong dollar today. Greg Daco, you gave us your time. You gave us your expertise. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. That's it for today, folks. I hope you'll join us next week when my guest is going to be Mike Ryan. Mike is the Associate Director of Comparative Industry Services at IHS Markets. We're going to have a deep dive on corporate debt and the manufacturing sector. Until then, this is Cliff Waldman reminding you that Manufacturing Matters, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.